Welcome again. Welcome home, family. We're so glad that you guys all could be here with us, that we can worship together this morning. Um, and hopefully that's the theme of all services that we come together is just give me Jesus. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, we are in chapter 18, the last half of chapter 18. And it's funny, as you, as you look at how the Gospel of John progresses, you have this switch about halfway through that the, the first half is about Jesus' life and ministry. And all of a sudden there's this switch where that has got, that three years is accomplished in like 11 chapters, and then all of a sudden it slows down. And we have four chapters in a couple hours as Jesus talks to his disciples. And then later, right where we are now, we have two chapters that talk about how Jesus goes to the cross for us. And we see it slowing down because it's, the gospel writer is drawing our attention to what matters. Because we're reaching the apex of the gospel message that Christ died for us. And he did this on purpose. He did this fully knowing what's going to, he's going to accomplish. And he did this of his own power and will. No one took his life from him, but he laid it down for us which is what we remember as we look into the Gospels of the Gospel of John. So let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for this word that we can open it up and know you, that we can open it up and see how you've been moving uh, in history and how you moved in Jesus' life for us, that we can open it up and know how you have saved us through your Son. And so, Lord, we pray for this time as we uh, come to your word, that you bring it to life in our minds, you bring it to life in our hearts, that you show us what we need to see. Lead us where we need to go so that we can always know you and worship you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of the year 2016, I, I uh, had the opportunity to, take, well, to go with a team to India and we saw some people we support there, some church planners who are doing great work there. And it was amazing. One of the biggest things that uh, stayed with me from that whole trip was walking into a village, actually walking into a village through some flooded plains because there was a flood that just happened, and going into a small dirt courtyard. And basically, is a, we visited a house church in this small village where the pastor put out the word, hey, some people are coming in the Christians of that community came out, and so we sat in the small little dirt courtyard, and we sang songs, and then we heard a, word, a message from the Word. And it was amazing to see the church in action in such a profoundly different way than what we're used to here. It's amazing to see the church in action where you have sitting around in a small courtyard with, with you know, half-naked kids and some naked kids, and they're singing uh, songs from hymns and songs that they wrote, they wrote down in daily planners because that's the book they had. And so like a, last year's planner, they wrote down the songs so they could sing them together. And it was amazing to see God being praised, but yet in such a different fashion. And I think it just goes to illustrate that if you go into any gospel-preaching church, you will hear the same message, the scripture will be central, but it will be done in such a different way. You go to a church in America, and even in America with the different traditions, you can see different things happening, but you walk into America and you almost expect 
expect what you see. You expect coffee out in the lobby, maybe some donuts. You expect the chairs to be aligned a certain way. You expect the service to go kind of how you would, would uh, expect it to happen. But when you travel across the world and you walk into a church in China, it might look a little different. The songs might be different. The setup might be different. They're probably speaking a different language. But yet, there's elements that are the same. The basis is the same. The word is being proclaimed. And it's the same thing that if you went to Africa, or if you went to Latin America, or you went to India. And it's the same thing if you went to a house church, or a secret church, or a small church, or a big church, or even a mega church. Hopefully, the basis is the same. The word is being proclaimed, but yet it looks different. And this is an amazing thing about Christianity. Christianity has the ability to go into every and any culture and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And no other religion has that because every other religion carries cultural baggage with it. Like if you take Islam, for example, it ha- the Quran has to be read in um, Arabic or it's not true as they believe it. They pray towards a specific city. They take pilgrimages to that city. But Christianity, because it's based on this truth that is universal for all humanity, can go into any culture, any nation, any tribe, any language, and proclaim a truth that is relevant for them. Because it's relevant for all of us. Proclaim the truth that Jesus is king. To, pray to, uh, to proclaim the truth that there's a God who orchestrated history so that Jesus could come and save us. This is a unique factor of Christianity. And that is rooted in this concept that Christianity, the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom that God is building through history, is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. That what Christianity is ushering in, what the gospel is ushering in within humanity is fundamentally different than what humans have built for themselves. It has some of the same terms. It has some some things that look similar, but at its core, it is different. And this is what Jesus tells Pilate in John chapter 18. So if you join me opening up your uh, Bibles to John chapter 18, we're going to uh, start in verse 28 of chapter 20, uh, 18, and if you don't have it, it's going to be on the screens. And I'm just going to uh, expound a little bit as we walk through this. So, starting in verse 28, it says this. You guys don't remember where we were from last week? Jesus had just been arrested. He'd been kind of trotted out to the high priest, and they had mocked him, and they had this mock trial, and now they're bringing him before Pilate. And it says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caliphus, who was the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. We can just stop there and notice the irony here. That these high priests, these officials of the law, they were, they were manipulating the judicial system to kill Jesus, but yet, because their law said they could not enter a Gentile's residence, without being come defiled and have to ceremony cleanse themselves, they knew this feast was coming over. The Passover was happening. The larger feast of the unleavened bread was happening. And so they didn't want to defile themselves because they wanted to partake of this whole celebration. It's ironic because here were these people working against 
the true Passover, Jesus, because they wanted to be ceremonially cleansed so they could take a meal and celebrate what Jesus fulfilled and pointed to. So they are working towards those ends, and in verse 29 we see, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. (coughs) Excuse me. Which is just funny here, because we see him kind of being impertinent to Pilate. Pilate comes out like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, hey, just trust us. This guy is evil. And Pilate apparently doesn't trust him. What makes this more ironic is that Pilate knows what's going on because Pilate supplied the soldiers that arrested Jesus. This did not happen without Pilate's understanding, but yet he's challenging them because he's, he's kind of pushing the limit, saying, what are you guys doing here? And they replied in that fashion. And so in verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. Even in this, we see prophecy being fulfilled. Even in this, we see Jesus' words being fulfilled. For Jesus had already told his disciples what kind of death he was going to die. He already proclaimed, when the Son of Man is lifted up, referring to his crucifixion, that people, all people will be drawn to him. He had already proclaimed this. And so this happening, the Jewish leaders taking him to Pilate, was to fulfill that manner of death. For the Jews, it's debatable whether they had power to kill someone or not. But if they were going to put someone to death, they would stone them. But Jesus had already told them that's not how he's going to die. To fulfill the scriptures that the Son of Man must be cursed, and to fulfill his very words that he was going to be lifted up. And so we see prophecy being fulfilled here. Continuing in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? It's funny, when we read this this gospel by itself, we wonder where Pilate got this idea that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Because it hadn't been mentioned. And that's how come you can compare it to the other Gospels and like in Luke 23, you see them actually coming before Pilate and claiming this man claims to be the king of the Jews. And they use that as leverage against Pilate because they say, hey, this guy is starting a, a, resurre- a, a, a revolution. That would be a good word to use. A revolution to bring about the end of the Roman occupation. And so they said, Pilate, you better do something. And so when we combine that, we see when he comes before Jesus says, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus says, hey, did someone tell you that? We know, oh yeah, someone did tell him that. The chief priests had set this up. They had lied to Pilate and said that he had been claiming this thing about himself. And so we see in verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, Do you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that you should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And again, we see such thick irony here that the leaders of the, of the religious council would choose to pick what this we'll call a robber over the king would choose to release Jesus, Barabbas rather, than Jesus. This is ironic because this guy, Barabbas, was no friend of these religious leaders. Because why we translate it robber here, it could be trans- translated terrorist or insurrectionist. This guy was someone who wanted to overthrow the government, which included the present council of the, of the religious leaders. This guy had no love in his heart for them, but yet they choose him over the person who was about to, to die for them. So again, we see this irony of who Jesus is. But when we look at this, we see rather the big focus was in that, those, those verses of uh, Jesus describing who he is and what his kingdom looks like. And that's where we're going to spend the purpose, the remainder of time here, is just looking at Jesus and who he is and what his kingdom looks like. Because the truth is, Jesus is the king of truth. When we look at this, this is really what we see, that Jesus says he is the king. He does not deny what Pilate says. He does not deny the accusation from the religious religious leaders, but he says that he is the king. He is coming here to establish his kingdom. He says, my kingdom does exist. And if he has a kingdom, he is a king. And he says, I came for this purpose, and that was to bear truth. And so we see these purposes working together, that he is the king of truth, that his kingdom is built and founded on the truth. And what is the truth? Who he is. He came to declare who he is and what he's accomplishing and how people stand in relationship to him. And he comes to declare this, establishing his kingdom. Jesus is the king of truth. And I love how he says this kind of phrase to Pilate. When he looks at Pilate and he says, this is why I was born. Why I came into this world. He's making it very clear that he came with a purpose. When I think about someone declaring their purpose, I cannot help but think back to 1988 to the sci-fi classic, They Live. If you know this movie, I don't know if you know this movie, but Roddy Piper, pro wrestler come action hero, uh, realizes aliens have taken over the world and he has special glasses where he can see them. And so he, uh, he sees them and he proclaims a great purpose statement. I have come to chew bubblegum and kick butt. Let's say butt. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Everyone knows his purpose. It's clear. It's crystal. There's no doubt about why he's where he is and doing what he's doing. And it's the same thing with Jesus. Looking at the guy who's ruling over this province, Pilate, who's about to put him to death, he says, I came for this purpose. You can't help but think he's, he's talking about right here, his death. I came for this purpose, to be a king for my people, 
And I do that by bearing witness for the truth. I come to declare who I am so people can know me, can understand me, and follow me, and so be saved. Jesus made his purpose very clear to Pilate and through the words of John, the gospel writer, to us that he comes for this purpose to be the king of truth. So when we look at this, we have to ask ourselves if Jesus is a king and he's a king of truth, what sort of kingdom is he establishing here? And he tells us what sort of kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. Right there, he's telling us it's fundamentally different than what we think of kingdoms. He says it's not of this world. It's it's of a different nature. It's not like this world. My kingdom is different. It's not from this world. It does not come from, originate from this world. Rather, it comes from God. My kingdom is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. That he came as he started at the very beginning of the Gospels, coming to preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. We have to ask ourselves, how do we think about this kingdom of God that Jesus is ushering in? People debate about this all the time. Some people equate it to heaven. Some people equate it to the church age. But I rather would equate it to understand when Christ reigns, when God reigns over his people and his place, that is where we see the kingdom of God. And we see this, and we can phrase it really uh, succinctly by saying this, the king's power over in the king's place over the king's people. That's what the kingdom is God, of God is. And when he uses those kind of ways of thinking about it and apply it to the world, we see how Jesus is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. Just to think about the king's power. What kind of power does Jesus have as king? When we think about an earthly king, we think of a national power, of a king who rules a national country who can set up laws and regulations and he enforces them by a police or an army. That's what we kind of think about on human terms. But that's not the power that Jesus brings to it. Jesus brings a power that transcends it. It's not limited to the national, but rather it's a power over people's hearts and minds as they come to realize who he is and are changed and are saved. It's a power that brings dead people to life. It's a power that makes sinners saints. It's a power that takes rebels and brings them into servants. It's a power that fundamentally changes how people see the world. That is the power of this king and as he is working in our lives, as he's being proclaimed through the word, the people are changed. It's not a nationalistic power. How we would take the place. When we think about kingdoms, we think of geographic borders, boundaries, limits to that power. We think of treaties and negotiations that if a kingdom wants to grow, they grow through treaty or they grow through war and that they seek to expand that but not so with Jesus. When we think of his place, he cannot be hemmed in or confined by national borders, just as I talked about at the intro, that his kingdom expands where everyone or where anyone believes that he is king. That is where he reigns in his people's lives. And so no nation can contain Jesus. No uh, boundaries on a map can hem him in. But rather, where anyone knows and hears the gospel and responds to the gospel, there is the kingdom of God 
being worked out in their lives. And so it's not a matter about physical boundaries. It's not a matter about what nation you belong to, but it's rather who do you bow to ultimately at the end. And if you know Jesus, that's where his kingdom is. Or people. Since it's the king's power in the king's place over the king's people, how about people? When we think about nations, usually think about a people group, don't we? We think about an ethnic group and that this is the boundaries in which someone might, might follow because that's who they are, that's how they identify. We make a big deal about where we came from. We're in America, we're a melting pot, and so we always look back and say, oh, I'm this percentage this or this percentage that, and we kind of make a big deal, so much so that you can go buy a DNA test, spit it into a tube, send it off, and they'll give you the results. And I love the commercials for that because it's kind of funny how people try to find identity and what their DNA make up. Have you guys seen those commercials where someone's like, we grew up and we wore later hosens and we thought we were German and then we got the DNA test back and we realized we're Scottish and so now I got to take off my later hosen and put on the kilt. You know, that's, like, that's the mentality. That's who I am. My very own father did it. My wife did it too. And it's funny how those results come back in and where someone's supposed to be like 50% German, they're only like 10% German. And now it's like my whole understanding of who I am is in question. My whole life has been a lie. It's this idea that that's how we identify as a people. And we look for people like us. And we associate with people like us. Because we think we're, part, we're supposed to gather together with people like us. But here comes God's kingdom. And it's not like that. For God's kingdom goes to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. For God's kingdom expands over every variation of skin tone imaginable. For God's kingdom pulls in every sort of person across this globe if they come to know who Christ is, they're brought into the kingdom. And when we look to how heaven is recorded in Revelation, we see this. People from every tribe, tongue, nation worshiping Christ worshiping God the heaven is intentionally multi-ethnic as people are brought in from all the corners of the globe to come and know who their king is Jesus that Jesus's kingdom is fundamentally different than what we think of a kingdom which means, as heart, we can sum it up and say, well, as heart, that means that Jesus' kingdom is spiritual rather than earthly. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual reality in people's hearts and in their minds as they submit to Christ wherever they are. It doesn't matter where they are on this earth, but where they submit to Christ, know the truth, follow his word, there is God's kingdom. And just because God's kingdom is spiritual and just because it's not of this world or from this world does not mean it does not interact in this world. For those people are in this world, are members of a nation, and so they work within their nations, they work within their people groups to bring praise to the Lord. It's not a call to separate from the world, but rather a call to be that light within the world that we're called to be by Jesus. That's a spiritual reality that now we've been our knees to who Christ is. But it's also an eternal reality. The kingdoms of this world come and go. The kingdoms of this world rise and fall. 
But Jesus is an eternal king. Eternal king who gets the final word. Eternal king who's going to usher in the, t- the end of time as we know it. The eternal king that as Philippians reminds us in chapter 2 verse 11 that there will come a time when every tongue on earth, above earth, below earth, anywhere will bow down and praise Christ as king. That His kingdom is eternal and He is bringing that to an end, a complete kingdom as He brings people to know who He is. What does this mean for us as we think about the difference of Christ's kingdom for our own? It redirects our hope. So often, we are kind of sh- have short-term vision in our hope. And we latch our hope onto kingdoms of this world. Or we latch our hope onto mechanisms of this kingdom of this world. And that's where we put our hope. We say, if we get the right person in that office, life will be good. If we get a right law passed, then the kingdom of God will flourish. If whatever you put, we start putting our hopes on the kingdom of this world, and rather God directs our gaze upwards and say, yes, those things are important. Yes, you should be voting in your faith. Yes, you should be working to change the society which you live in, but that's not your hope. The hope is not that our nation becomes uh, a Christian nation, whatever that means. That's not our hope. Our hope would rather be that our nation is filled with Christians living out their faith as people come to realize the gospel and so are changed and start living out that faith. Our hope is that the kingdom of God spreads to every heart and every mind around us and so that we can be living in a community rich with gospel believers loving each other and serving each other and moving forward. And so what this means is that we should direct our hope not so much to these things here. We should work for them, yes. But our final, ultimate hope rests firmly and alone in Christ being king. And his kingdom, his gospel, going to all the corners of the earth as people are brought in and know him. And how do we do that? Is we proclaim the truth that Jesus is the king of truth. We proclaim who he is and lives are changed. But you gotta love as the king of truth stands before Pilate and is proclaiming what his kingdom is not like and how everyone who follows truth, who knows truth, will follow him. You have to love Pilate's response. What is truth? Pilate has total disdain for what Jesus just said. And this is so relevant for our day and age. For I don't know if you've talked to people who don't believe the truth of the Scriptures, but often they resort right back to that phrase. Well, that might be good for you, but it's not good for me. Oh, that works for you, so you should follow that, but I don't think that's going to be true for me. We have taken, our society has taken this idea of truth and made it personal that you can have your own truth. Man, you can't say that to me. I'm just following my truth. It's true for me, and so that's what works. We've taken something that's universal, something that is the basis of our understanding, and we've made it something that is personal, that we could decide what to follow and what not. We all, our society has become little mini-pilots, saying what is truth? How can you possibly speak to me 
about what truth is. And it's funny because when we read the Gospel of John in light of what Pilate says here at the end, we see that the Gospel of John has been preparing his readers for this from the get-go. Look at the Gospel of John and 26 times it mentions truth. It's building to this concept. It's building to this conflict with Pilate. What is truth, you ask? Well, let's look at the Gospel of John. It tells us what is truth. Just in the last chapter, in chapter 17, we see Jesus telling his disciples that in his prayer to the Father, sanctify them in truth, God. Your word is truth. And so we see that an understanding of what truth is, is God's word. Where do we find truth? We come to his word and we know who he is. Where do we want to know truth? find truth we once again direct our gaze to the word of god where do we proclaim truth to those people around us we uphold the word of god to them and say check it out for this is true this is truth and so we see that truth is first and foremost found in the word and then we know from again from the gospel of john that truth is found in worship of that truth think back to john 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, what does he say when he points to the future? There come a day when people who follow me will worship in spirit and in truth. That he's saying fundamentally, when you worship God, when you see me for who I am, when you know me and worship me as the king, you are in the truth. And that worship comes through, or truth comes through worship, and we see that. And so we have word, we have worship, and then we have wonder at the truth himself, Jesus. For again, in the book of John, just go back to chapter 14, and we see Jesus declaring to his followers, I am the way, the life, the truth. That he says, look at me, wonder at me, and you will see what the truth is. And so we see in word and in worship and in wonder at Jesus, because I wanted to make all three W's, we see this is how we know who and what the truth is. We know it from the word. We know it from worshiping the Christ who saves us. And we know it from looking at our Lord and Savior. And here is Pilate staring into the eyes of the truth and being so blinded, he asks, what is truth? Being confronted with the very truth himself, he doesn't get it. And there are so many people in our lives that we might know, in our families, who don't see the truth right before them. It is a call for us once again to proclaim it with winsome love. Look to Jesus and see him. Because again, the Gospel of John tells us in John 8, when we see the truth, it sets us free. When we come to realize who Jesus is, that he is who he has proclaimed he is, that all the prophecies point to him, that he's the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, that he is the Lord and Savior, that he has come to live the perfect life we could not live, that he has come to die on the cross, a death that we deserve as sinners, that he has come so that our sin can be taken on him and his righteousness can be put into us, that he has come to pull us into the family of God. When you realize this truth, this truth that dies for us, we are changed. We are saved. 
We're pulled from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're saved and we can respond and we can live in that saving grace that Christ has given us. That we're fundamentally changed when we see this truth and we're set free. And so we follow the king of truth. Jesus is the king of truth. What does this mean for us? Well, we all live in a tale of two kingdoms. Every morning when we wake up, we are simultaneously, if you're a Christian, a member of two kingdoms. You go about your work, you go about your life, and you're living physically in the kingdom of the United States of America. You, you are walking about and you're following those laws, hopefully, and you're doing what you're, you're supposed to do as a citizen. You're simultaneously living in that kingdom as you are a kingdom of the, king, of the kingdom of God, a citizen of the kingdom of God. All of us are simultaneously members of two kingdoms if we believe in Christ. And it's fine. It's easy for us. We live in a great country. I love our country. We live in a great country where more often than not, those kingdoms do not come into conflict. That you can follow wholeheartedly the kingdom of God and you are going to be a good citizen. You're going to be a good neighbor. You're going to be a good uh, taxpayer. You're going to be everything that the, the America would want you to be. More often than not, those are not in conflict. But the question has to be asked, where does our ultimate allegiance lie? Because when they come in conflict, if they come in conflict, who do you follow who is your Lord? Who is your master? We can ask this question in a more academic sense, but people in other countries don't get that opportunity. For when coming into the kingdom of God, when they follow Christ, they know immediately that now they're out of step with their culture, they're out of step with their country, and that they could be put to death, or they can be tried, or they can be put in prison, or they can have their companies taken away from them, or they can just lose their livelihood. They know that. And yet they come knowing they follow the king of truth. But us, in this great country we live, have to ask this question. Because what would it look like for us to follow the king of truth in a country that now maybe starts steering away from that truth? That might mean that we have to stand up for the truth even when it hurts. That might mean that churches lose their tax-exempt status well guess what the god the god's kingdom is bigger than that and it keeps going beyond that it might mean that you might lose some friends or you might lose some business opportunities or you might lose that but we stand on the truth because we proclaim in our hearts and our minds and we proclaim boldly to those people around us that we believe this is true and we follow it no matter what when the world starts moving away from the truth, we stand on the truth because we know who the truth is, the truth that has saved us, the truth that's going to bring us home. And so we follow the king of truth. Jesus is the king of truth. So we set our eyes on him. We, take, we go where he directs. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for this day that we can come and worship you. Lord, we do thank you for our great country that we can be members of a country that does not put up pressure on us to go away from your ways. 
And so, Lord, we pray that we can continue to be in our country and help in our community as we proclaim the truth of who you are and help people point their eyes, their faces, and their hearts to you. Lord, we love you. We pray that we can follow you wherever you direct us. That we can be yours. That we can know your truth and let it guide us through our whole lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.